Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional health care for all. Your journey to better health starts here. I'm Kimberly. Um, I'm the nurse practitioner here at Forum Health Rochester Hills and Forum Health Clarkston. Um, I designed this class several years ago. I was living and working in Mississippi, and um, I knew intuitively and after my own experience that diets don't work and patients want to come in and get a diet, but diets don't work. So that puts you in a really difficult position. Patient wants to lose weight or feel better or correct a health problem, but they want a diet and there's not one. There's not a diet that works for everybody. So I started developing this class to teach my patients and their friends and their family members how to design their own diet so that they would know what their body needs because only you know what your body needs. You just need the information to put that together, right? So in Mississippi, I did this class for free, just like I do it here, um, four times a year. And over the three years that I did it in Mississippi, we lost 1,500 pounds cumulatively, and we got off 300-ish prescription medications. So diets don't work, but hacking your body does. So that's what we're going to learn, how to hack your own body. Your weight is controlled not by how many calories you put in your mouth or how many calories you exercise, but by a thermostat. That thermostat is called the hypothalamus. It's in the brain, and its job is survival. The hypothalamus wants to keep you alive. That's the job it was given. And to keep you alive, it has to make sure you have enough stored fat and energy to get through a crisis or a famine or whatever may come. But modern life sends a lot of very weird signals to the hypothalamus. We don't typically have famines, do we? Because there's a McDonald's on every corner. We typically have excess, not too little. And that sends a signal to our brain. Okay, we're gorging. Because in the past, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they would kill an animal and they would gorge. And then they would have very little to eat, tubers and berries, until they killed another animal. So that's the way our bodies work. Okay, we're gorging, that means store. And when the famine comes, we're prepared. But does the famine ever come? The famine never comes. Um, hacking your body is about more than just losing weight. Very, very rarely do I get a patient who comes in and shows me a picture of a bikini and says, I wanna fit in this and look good. Rarely. Most people come in and say, I don't wanna be tired anymore. I wanna get up and have energy. I want to go to work and not be struggling to get home in the evening. I want to be happy. I don't want to be depressed or anxious. I want to sleep at night. That's what really motivates people to change. Well, the great thing is that by restoring your body's thermostat, everything gets better. You don't just lose weight. And you don't just lose weight that's going to come back the minute you jump off the diet, right? Anybody in here done a diet? Anybody gain the weight back? <laughs> Anybody done another diet? <laughs> so yo-yo dieting doesn't work. Uh, what you feed your body is incredibly important. What, what you put in your body is what you can get out of it. So I wouldn't go put sugar in my gas tank and expect my car to take me back to Clarkston, right? I wouldn't put canola oil instead of motor oil 
and expect my vehicle to take me back to Clarkson because that's not the way it works. Well, you have machinery and it works in a very particular way. So this class is to teach you not to put canola oil and sugar in your tank and what to put in your tank so that your body will run well. So my own personal experience and the reason that I do functional medicine to begin with is when I was um, starting nurse practitioner school, I had been working night shift. Um, I worked at night. I went to college in the morning and then I went home and took a nap and then I picked up my kids from school. So I was sleeping basically never. Um, and I've been doing that for two years. So when I finally got to um, start my nurse practitioner program, I was 250 pounds and I felt awful. I fe felt terrible. Never been that sick in my life. So I started trying to lose weight, right? So you eat less, you exercise more, and then you eat even less and you exercise more and you eat even less and you exercise more until your body goes, no, not going to lose any more weight. Forget it. So I went to see my primary care provider. And I said, I'm eating um, 200 calorie meals six times a day. That was the recommendation back then. And I'm exercising six days a week and I can't lose a pound. I'm actually gaining weight now. And his answer was, we'll eat less and exercise more. Because that was really helpful for me. That was really what my body needed. What he should have asked is, do you sleep? How much stress are you under? Right? Because if you don't sleep at night when the sun is down, your thermostat gets very confused. And so weight gain is a common consequence of that. Night shift workers are the sickest people. Um, it's really hard on the body. So eat less and exercise more is the wrong answer for everyone. The right answer is let me figure out who you are so that we can put your give your body what your body needs. And that's different for everybody. So this class is to teach you how to do that, right? And I promise by the end, You'll be almost there, and then you can come to another one, and then you'll be 100% there, right? <laughs> All right. So today, um, we're talking about macronutrients and the way that your body metabolizes them. What are the macronutrients? Protein, carbs, and fats. Very good. So to even begin to talk about diet, you have to start with the body because you don't put food in your mouth and magically it turns into nutrition, right? When you put food in your mouth, there's a complex process that happens in the gut and the different macronutrients are digested differently. Understanding that difference helps you begin to see why certain foods make you feel better and certain foods make you feel worse and some foods make you gain weight and some don't. So that's why we have to talk about the GI tract and because I'm a nerd, I like to talk about nerdy stuff. All right, so digestion actually starts in your mouth way up there at the top. In your saliva, you have a digestive enzyme called amylase that breaks down starches. And that's why bread, pasta, and potatoes taste sweet. And we like them because we start to extract sugar from those foods while they're still in our mouths. So do you think the impact on your blood sugar from a potato might be different from broccoli? Big difference. Um, so it starts with amylase in the saliva. It also um, starts with your teeth. What's the purpose of the teeth? Yeah, it's to grind the food up. If you swallow big chunks of food, do you think that's easy for your body to digest and metabolize? Big old hunk of steak. But we do it, don't we? Because in modern life, we don't have time to sit and enjoy a meal. We just feed ourselves so we can keep going, right? And sometimes we do that in the car while we're driving. So I'll give you a little... Um, a little 
star bonus, your digestion is controlled by the vagus nerve. So you have two sides to your nervous system. You have the fight or flight side, the stress hormone side, and you have the parasympathetic side, which is the vagus nerve. Rest, digest, repair, detoxification. That's where all that stuff happens. For you to truly digest your food, the vagus nerve has to be in charge. So do you think a 15-minute lunch in your car driving down the street to get back to go do your next thing, let your vagus nerve be in charge for any length of time? Do you feel rested? In that scenario, what about if you go home and you throw together something really quickly and you shovel it in so that you can go to bed or go out wherever you're going to go? Do you think the vagus nerve is in charge? The vagus nerve requires things to be calm and quiet. Do we have any of that in our lives anymore? No, this is why modern life is so hard on the human body. Okay, so you need to chew your food. The more you chew it, the better you digest. And it's not just because chewing mechanically breaks down the food. It's because chewing actually sends a signal to your um, stomach, small intestine, gallbladder, and pancreas to tell them, hey, we got food coming. And if you don't chew enough, the food gets there and your body's not prepared. So it's difficult to digest. So you do want to make sure that you're chewing fully. Anybody know how much chewing fully is? How many chews is it per bite? 20 to 30. 20 to 30. Good job. That's exactly right. Uh, Then the food drops down the esophagus and goes into the stomach. In the stomach, you have hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric acid is very, very acidic. It would eat through this floor if we put it on the floor. And it has three jobs. One, it sterilizes your food. Does your food have pathogens? Microbes, parasites, fungus, right, bacteria. That has to be sterilized, and that's done in your stomach under the influence of hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric acid also breaks up protein into smaller little chunks so that it can be digested in the small intestine. So when you think about protein, protein is just long chains of these amino acids that are stacked on top of one another. The amino acids are what human beings need. We need to get the amino acids out and use them to make human cells. But they're really long, very long. I mean, some of them are thousands of amino acid chains long. So hydrochloric acid's job is to break it up into little chunks so that when it gets to the small intestine, you can get those amino acids. And amino acids are what you build your body out of, right? You're made of protein and fat. And amino acids are where that protein comes from. The third job of hydrochloric acid is to tell your gallbladder and your pancreas um, that food is coming and you need to send the digestive enzymes in the bile. Anybody knows what bile does from your gallbladder? Mm -hmm. Which part? The fat. That's right. So fat, oil, and water don't mix. And the bloodstream is water-based but we need fat. So to get fat from your food and your GI tract into the bloodstream, you have to have soap, basically. Bile is soap, just like the Dawn that you get the grease off of your pans with. That's what bile salts do. It, and it encapsulates the fat and pulls them across into the bloodstream so that you can use them. And the fat is where um, a lot of our calories come from, good calories, as long as it's healthy fat. Our vitamin A, D, E, and K all comes from fat. Your heart and your brain both prefer fat as an energy source. So um, some fats leave your gut and go straight to the heart, and some go straight to the brain. So you need fats. 
and you need your gallbladder in order to emulsify those. If you've lost your gallbladder, it's probably because you didn't have enough hydrochloric acid to tell your gallbladder to empty. If you don't empty your gallbladder every time you eat, it gets backed up and sludgy and you get stones and then it has to come out. If you don't have it, that's something we can work around, but you definitely want to have one. So your hydrochloric acid, when it hits the small intestine, it says to the gallbladder, okay, send out the bile. And it says to the pancreas, send out your digestive enzymes. Digestive enzymes help you digest everything else. Hydrochloric acid, um, because it has such important jobs, when there's a disruption to hydrochloric acid, you can see serious disruption to your digestion and your ability to get nutrients. And interestingly, the most common trigger for low stomach acid, not enough stomach acid, is stress. So you remember stress is fight or flight, stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. If you're running from a tiger, is digesting your lunch a priority? From a physiological perspective, it's not. So under the influence of adrenaline and cortisol, your, your body shunts blood away from the GI tract and it sends it to the brain, to the lungs, to the eyes, and to the muscles, because that's where you need it for fighting or fleeing. If you're doing that a lot, then the gut starts to struggle to even repair itself on a daily basis, just to do its regular maintenance. And you also turn down stomach acid production and you turn down digestion. That's probably the most common reason for not only GI disturbances, but the consequences of GI disturbances, the inflammatory conditions that we'll talk about. Um, because we live with so much stress in modern life, right? I mean, just picking up your phone and seeing social media can send your hydrochloric acid down the toilet bowl. Um, so once your um, food hits the small intestine along with your bile and the digestive enzymes, that's where the magic really happens. That's where you turn a piece of steak into amino acids and fat that a human being can use um, in order to repair their body. So if you're struggling to repair your body or to keep your body in good repair, Thinking about the gut is always a good place to start, especially in modern life where we have a lot um, of stress in general. After you get your nutrients from the small intestine, what's left is the waste. That's what goes to the colon. The colon pulls the water out of that waste to turn it into a solid and to help you um, conserve water. And the colon is where most of your microbiome live. You know what the microbiome is, right? That's your good, um, good gut bacteria and fungi. You have 99% bacterial DNA. Your body is 1% human, 99% bacterial because you have so many bacterial cells in the GI tract, um, four pounds or so. So just take that four pounds off the scale. That's not me, bacteria. <laughs> All right. So now that you understand how the digestion happens, we're going to talk about how each of these macronutrients is digested so you can start to understand why they're important. So let's start with fat. Fat is a very dense form of energy, meaning that um, you can get more calories from fat than you can get from anything else. Remember, this is not a calories in, calories out conversation. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about diets. We're not talking about calorie restriction. We're talking about fueling your body. And if you need to fuel your body, fats are a good place to go as long as they're healthy fats. So we'll talk about what the healthy fats are and what the unhealthy fats are. So what do you do with fat? Fat is how you make your hormones. All of the hormones in your body are made out of fats. 
um, fat is the precursor. So if you want normal functioning insulin, you have to have fat. That's the hormone that regulates your blood sugar. If you want to have normal sex hormones, you have to have fat. If you want to have normal adrenal hormones, you have to have fat and less stress, but definitely have to have fat. You make all your hormones out of fat. I like my hormones. I would like for them to be robust. And if you want your thermostat to be regulated, you have to address hormones because that plays a key role in your metabolism. You also build your cells out of fat. 50% of every cell in your body is fat and the other 50% is amino acids. So you need fat and protein to make human cells. Every seven years, you are a completely different body. Your body replaces itself every seven years. Some things replace themselves a lot faster, like the lining of your GI tract dies and repairs every three to seven days. It's a very fast turnover. But you have to have fat to make these cells, all of them. You have to have fats to make myelin sheaths. Myelin sheaths are the wire coating for your long nerves. So the nerves that come out of your brainstem and your spinal cord and feed all of your body, they have these um, wire coatings on them to make the signal move normally through the nerve and to protect the nerve from any kind of damage. So, you know, like the wire coating right here, this black stuff isn't doing anything except protecting the wire underneath. Your body makes those two, they're called myelin sheaths, and they're made out of fat plus B12. So if you want to have carpal tunnel syndrome, neuropathy, migraines, um, a low fat diet, a low fat and a low protein diet is a great way to get it because you get your B12 from meats um, and then your fats. So normal nervous system function requires you to consume fat. You also make prostaglandins and everybody's always surprised by this one. A prostaglandin is what causes your blood vessels to dilate. So if you wanna have normal blood pressure, you have to have lots of prostaglandins. Prostaglandins make the vessels dilate so that your blood pressure will stay low. If you aren't consuming enough fat, you won't make enough prostaglandins. So I just said that a high fat diet is better for your blood pressure. Do you catch that? You also build all kinds of signaling chemicals and we're not gonna go through the, um, the nerdy names, but your body communicates in two ways. It communicates amongst itself with electricity and with chemical um, signaling. The chemical signals are made out of fat and the electricity is just generated by your body. Your body's a battery. Um, so a lot of the communication has to be done with these chemicals that are created out of fats so that all of the cells of your body know what to do, right? If you want your um, serotonin in the brain to get to other places in the brain and the body, you have to have chemical signals um, because the body depends on those. It's like, I don't know, it's like your, your, um, your body's internet. You know, everything we do now is on the internet and your body's internet is signaling chemicals and um, electricity. So fats, really important, right? The way that you get fat, digestion of fat starts in the small intestine with bile. Remember, bile from your gallbladder is how you emulsify those fats and get them into the bloodstream. The digestive enzymes from the pancreas also help. 
once the bile has encapsulated those um, fats, the free fatty acids that you've broken down your food into, some of them leave and go straight to the heart. So the heart likes fat. The heart prefers fat, specific kinds of fat. Some of it leaves the gut and goes straight to the brain. And some of it leaves the gut and goes straight to the liver. And this is going to become important when we talk about unhealthy fats. What does the liver do? Right, it's your detoxification organ. So everything you eat, touch, breathe, um, drink, everything has to go through the liver, everything. So if you are eating things that are toxic and they're being dumped straight into the liver, then you can see a lot of liver issues. And as a matter of fact, the most common liver issue in the United States at this point is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which comes directly from the toxins you're dumping from the gut into the liver. So the liver, which is sitting over there, is connected to the small intestine through something called the portal vein. And every time you absorb nutrients from your food, they get dumped into the liver. The liver is responsible for processing them into human form. The only thing that doesn't go over there is um, glucose and some of your fats. So what you're dumping into the liver directly impacts how healthy the liver is going to be. And as the liver gets more and more toxic, so do you. And it becomes very difficult to maintain a healthy body at that point. Fats take hours to digest, um, which is why they keep you full for so long, right? If you have eggs and bacon in the morning, you stay full a lot longer than if you had toast in the morning. Um, so it keeps you satisfied. There are different kinds of fats. So you have three different categories of fat. Um, Short-chain fatty acids, medium-chain fatty acids, and long-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids primarily come from milk fat. Um, that's about the only place you get short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are broken down in your small intestine. They go straight to the liver. So this is one of the ones that it's important that the fat not be toxic because it's dumping straight into the liver. Um, how easy is it to get milk and milk products in the United States that aren't toxic? What kind of things do we find in our, in our dairy products, commercially farmed dairy products? Hormones, antibiotics. We find abnormal hormones, but we also find very high levels of the normal hormones because in commercial farming, we milk pregnant cows. So breast milk is a pathway for detoxification. Whatever hormones are in the female mammal's body will show up in the breast milk. So if you, um, if you milk a pregnant cow, pregnant cows have 10, 15 times higher levels of hormones. So that milk is going to have 10 to 15 um, times more hormones than a non-pregnant cow would have had. Well, you're not going to know the difference because they don't market pregnant, not pregnant. They don't tell you that. Um, so short chain fatty acids, it's really important that you, um, that you have healthy, uh, dairy, that you have access to healthy dairy or that you don't consume dairy. The other thing about short chain fatty acids is that they digest really quickly. So milk is not going to keep you full as long as a piece of steak would, which I think just makes sense intuitively. Uh, medium chain fatty acids are also called medium chain triglycerides. You might've heard of that because a lot of keto diets recommend MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil, that it's just a medium chain fatty acid. Medium chain fatty acids take a lot longer to digest. 
They take a lot longer to get to the liver and they're also metabolism boosting. So um, medium chain triglycerides take more energy to process than they donate. So if you're wanting to lose weight, if you're wanting to boost your metabolism, if you're wanting to move things in that direction, that's why medium chain triglycerides are in most of those diets, in the keto diets and the high fat diets and the paleo diets, because they are metabolism boosting um, and they are uh, preferred by the heart and the brain. And then long chain, so where would you get medium chain um, triglycerides? So that would be coconut, MCT oil, palm oil, which is my favorite, red palm oil. Never heard of red palm oil? It is delicious. Makes everything taste better. And then the long chain fatty acids, these take the longest to digest. They don't have quite the metabolism boosting uh, benefit that medium chain fatty acids have, but there's, they're not bad for you. They're good for you. You need them. Long chain fatty acids would be um, olive oil, nuts and seeds, meat and fish. So the longer it takes to digest, the fuller you are um, and the slower the impact on the liver. The other benefit to fats um, is that they require zero insulin. So talk to me about insulin for a second. What does that do? It's like, I know the word. Yeah. I know. It regulates your blood sugar. That's right. So insulin is actually a hormone and its job is to tell your cells uh, when and how to take up sugar. So if you want to maintain or reduce fat storage, you have to get your insulin under control because here's the ways it can lower your blood sugar. It can take sugar up to a muscle cell and say, take in the sugar and the muscle cell will say, okay, we worked out today. We need some sugar. Or it can take it up to a muscle cell and it can say, here, have some sugar. And the muscle cell can say, well, we didn't exercise today or yesterday, but we can store a little bit. That's called glycogen. If you're not moving your muscles very much at all, then the insulin has no choice but to take it to a fat cell and say, I need you to store this as triglycerides because we got nowhere else to put it. So if your um, diet is pushing insulin levels up higher and higher, your risk of abnormal fat storage is going higher and higher because the insulin is either going to put it in a muscle if the muscle will use it or it's going to put it in a fat cell. So fats don't require any insulin, which means a diet that's higher in fat and protein, less likely, and we're going to talk about proteins, less likely to drive abnormal fat storage, pre-diabetes, diabetes, that kind of stuff. Make sense? All right. So what are the healthy fats that we should be eating and what are the ones that we should not be eating? All right, what do you think goes up here under healthy fats? I gave you some clues, okay? Avocado, coconut, olive and olive oil, palm oil. Yes, please. What else? Fish, omegas. Fish. Nuts. Nuts and seeds. Um, and then healthy meats. How do I know a meat is healthy? Right, how it was raised, um, how it was treated, how it was raised. Yeah, so we'll say happy meats. 
happy animals make better meals. And they really are a lot happier. Um, to be on a pasture until you suddenly just aren't alive anymore, that is so much better than commercial um, feedlots. Let's see, did we miss anything? Um, what about butter and ghee? So butter and ghee, again, like any meat product, is, it, is only as healthy as the animal is. Butter has a little bit of um, casein, which is the protein from dairy. It has zero lactose, which is the sugar from dairy. And ghee has zero casein and zero lactose. So if you have dairy sensitivity, ghee is usually okay. Um, butter, not necessarily. But if you don't have any dairy sensitivity, then a good grass-fed butter usually goes a long way. It makes things taste a lot better. Miss anything else? Nope, we got it. All right, so then on the un unhealthy side, the first fat that you want to avoid is called trans fats. So trans fats are uh, human created. This is something we did in a lab for no good reason, no healthy for human reasons. Um, we did it because um, there were some really bad studies that were done in the 50s that said if you ate saturated fat, it increased your risk for cardiovascular disease. The problem was that he kept eliminating countries out of the study until he proved his hypothesis. If he had kept all of the studies that he started with, all of the countries that he started with, he wouldn't have been able to prove his hypothesis. That was Ansel Keys. So because of that and because of lobbying to the government, um, we started pushing for unsaturated fats for options. So we had to turn take butter and lard, which was a, a commonly used saturated fat, and turn it into something else so that we could sell it and make money selling it. Um, so trans fats are when you take a, um, a liquid oil and turn it into a solid oil in to a solid fat in the chemical lab. So for example, they took canola oil and turned it into margarine, right? So they took something liquid and it's basically a plastic. It's one molecule away from being a plastic once they finish with it. Well, trans fats, um, increase insulin resistance, which means even if your blood sugar is beautiful and you're exercising, but you're eating trans fats, you can still end up with diabetes. They lower your HDL cholesterol, which is the good, the happy cholesterol, the good cholesterol. They raise your LDL cholesterol and they increase inflammation. And anytime you hear me say increase inflammation, you should also hear me say causes cancer, causes cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes. Um, anytime you increase inflammation, those are the risks, damage to the vessels and cancer. So here's the thing about trans fats. Even the FDA finally admitted that trans fats were bad for us. I don't know, what's that been like seven years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago? Um, and they mandated labeling of any product that has trans fats in it. But you only have to you only have to label it if it's more than a half a milligram. Anything less than a half a milligram per serving, they're not required to label it. Which means if you get a big tub of margarine, it will not say anything about trans fats, but you will have thousands and thousands of milligrams in that tub once you calculated up all the servings. So you can't trust a label that says no trans fats because they gave them a loophole. If you want to know if something has trans fats in it, you look for this word here, hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated. 
So that process in the lab that I told you about, that process is hydrogenation. Um, so they're using hydrogen to add molecules until it turns into a solid. That's what um, generates trans fat. So on the ingredient label, if you see hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated anything, there's trans fats in it. Um, and there's no way of knowing how much because they it's half a milligram or less. So you definitely want to stay away from the trans fats. Now, the reason that we use trans fats is because they're shelf stable. So, you know, liquid oils go rancid pretty easily. Uh, trans fats last forever. So if you want to know why a Twinkie will survive the nuclear apocalypse and we won't, it's because we're not made of trans fats and Twinkies are. Um, so they use trans fats to make things shelf stable. So all of your processed foods are going to have um, trans fats in them, right? The cookies, the bread, the cereal, everything that has to be shelf stable, going to have trans fats in it. It's also used in, um, in restaurant food production uh, because restaurant foods have to look good all day, right? You have no idea when they cook that stuff. has to look good all day. Um, and they also use garbage oils over and over and over and over to fry their foods. Um, so most, most of the places you'll see trans fats are in your commercially prepared shelf-stable foods, anything, you, anything in the middle of the grocery store, right? Um, plus anything that was commercially prepared um, or restaurant prepared. And then the other unhealthy fat, PUFAs. So that stands for polyunsaturated fatty acids. Polyunsaturated fatty acids are um, liquid oils by nature. And they are very easy to oxidize. Um, anybody ever had a rusted vehicle? Seen rust on a vehicle or a grill that you left outside or something? That's, that's the process of oxidizing. Well, oxidizing happens inside the human body. It happens in animals. It happens with plants. It happens everywhere. Um, that's just a natural process of living on a planet that has oxygen. We live on a planet with oxygen. Things are going to oxidize. Uh, but you don't want to consume tons of oxidized materials because that's how you get cancer. You've heard antioxidant, right? Antioxidants are things that we use to try to combat all that damage to prevent cancer. Well, the most, um, the source with the most oxidants is PUFAs. So, um, canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil, corn oil. You ever squeezed a corn kernel and got oil out of it? You ever squeezed any vegetable and got oil out of it? So where exactly did the oil come from? So where the oil came from was again, the chemical lab. So in the chemical lab, they use hexane and benzene, which are petrochemicals, to extract things from the plants and turn them into oils things that were not oils to begin with. So it's not a naturally occurring substance at all. And hexane and benzene, um, that process requires very high heat. So if you wanna oxidize something, give it oxygen and heat. Best way to oxidize something. So by the time you get your jar or your bucket of canola oil, it's already been oxidized. Plus it still has measurable amounts of hexane and benzene in it. That's allowed by the FDA. Um, and so you're just drinking cancer-causing agents every time you put that on anything, every time you fry in it, every time you cook in it, every time you put it in a cake, whatever you're doing with it. So you definitely want to avoid the PUFAs. And that list, again, was corn oil, soybean oil, canola oil, 
vegetable oil. If you have to scratch your head to figure out how they got an oil out of whatever they put on the label, it's probably a PUFA. Now, olive oil, I can squeeze an olive and get oil out of that, right? That's easy to make. I can squeeze coconut and get oil out of that. That's easy to make. It doesn't require any hexane, benzene, or processing in the chemical lab. Um, and it's not a PUFA. So those are the ones you want to avoid. Now, how many things are soybean oil in? Like everything. Soybean oil and partially hydrogenated soybean oil in almost everything. Very difficult. Very difficult to avoid. But the reason you want to avoid them is because not only do they do all of these things here, so insulin resistance, lower your good cholesterol, raise your bad cholesterol, and cause inflammation, they also raise your blood pressure. And they cause liver damage. So you remember how I told you that what goes into your small intestine directly impacts the health of your liver? These um, fats here, these act like short chain fatty acids and they go straight from the small intestine to the liver and they're very toxic, so, which means they're very hard on the liver. So we didn't start seeing incredibly high levels of heart attacks and strokes until we did this nonsense right here. Um, the rates have done nothing but rise every year since we did that. Um, and this didn't help us either. And now we have so much liver damage in the United States. Doctors just think it's, nor I mean, oh, it's just a little fatty liver disease. You're fine. Just a little fatty liver disease. You can't be just a little bit pregnant. A little bit of liver damage goes a long way to making you a sick person. And it gets worse over time unless you do something. And the worse over time part ends in cirrhosis that you didn't earn by drinking too much, right? The most common cause of cirrhosis in our country now is not alcoholic cirrhosis. It's this. All right. So that was the facts. Now we'll talk about the proteins. And remember, proteins are just long chains of amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks of life. So it's called the building blocks of life because um, remember, 50% of every cell is amino acid and 50% of every cell is fat or cholesterol. So you literally are building your, um, building your body out of these amino acids. But you can't build human protein out of cow protein. So steak is not gonna become, I don't know, liver tissue for you. Um, unless you break it down completely and put those amino acids back in line in a human form, it has to be in human form for you. So remember we talked about um, the digestion of the protein requires hydrochloric acid. So you got to have good stomach acid. Um, we're not going to talk a ton about stomach acid tonight, but just to let you know, a little precursor preview, um, hydrochloric acid levels drop 10% for every decade of life. So if you're at 60, 70 years of age, your hydrochloric acid is already pretty low. If you add some stress on top of that, it could be as low as zero. As a matter of fact, 60% of all women over the age of 60 have atrophic gastritis, which is zero stomach acid whatsoever. That's a pretty high number. Um, so you gotta have hydrochloric acid and you have to have digestive enzymes coming from the pancreas. That's how you break these proteins down into the amino acids. And then the amino acids go to your liver and the liver starts putting them together in human form and sending them out to the body. So what all do we do with proteins? Other than cell building, which we talked about, and repair. 
So this is why if somebody has a wound, we put them on a high um, protein diet, right? Because they need to be building cells. I put them on a high fat, high protein diet because they need both. Um, you also transport your nutrients inside proteins. So the nutrients that your body needs, they don't all just float around willy-nilly in the bloodstream. A lot of them are transported with transport proteins or globulins. So you make those transport proteins out of amino acids. So your ability to carry B12 into the brain tissue, for example, or to carry cholesterol into your adrenals for hormone production, that requires transport proteins. Uh, transport proteins and it transports nutrients. You also need amino acids for normal vascular function. So if you want your blood vessels to dilate normally for your blood pressure to be normal and to prevent cardiovascular disease, you need protein, which makes me crazy when cardiologists put patients on a vegan diet. Where are you going to get the protein? When you look at how well you get nutrients out of plants, you know, you look at a vegan textbook or book or diet or whatever, and they give you this list of nutrients that are in the plants. And so you can replace steak with this, legumes, whatever. The problem is that the nutrients in meat is 98% bioavailable, meaning you can actually get out of that food the nutrients that you needed, the B12, the iron, the vitamin D, whatever. The nutrients in plants are only 2 to 15% bioavailable. So if this pile of legumes has the same amount of protein as this piece of steak, I have to assume that I just lost 70, 85% at least because it's only two to 15% bioavailable. That's because plants have self-protective uh, mechanisms. Plants make lectins and phytates so that um, a deer comes along and eats the legume and poops it out somewhere else and the plant grows there. That's their life cycle. Uh, so with those lectins and phytates, it is anti-digestion. That's the point of those things. So getting everything you need out of plants only is virtually impossible. I would argue to say it is absolutely impossible. You could do a vegan diet with a whole lot of supplementation, but you couldn't do a vegan diet and get everything you needed without supplementation for sure. So vascular function leads directly into blood pressure regulation. Here's my favorite. You make all of your neurotransmitters out of amino acids. So if you've been down the clinic, um, you might've seen the Brain RX posters, which are the Brain RX is just amino acids to improve your neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, the things in your brain that run your brain and control your mood. all made out of amino acids and most of them are made out of amino acids that we can't uh, manufacture so there's some amino acids that our liver can make for us but the amino acids for neurotransmitters cannot be manufactured in the human body it has to be consumed so if you look at rates of anxiety depression suicidality in vegans especially children it's incredibly high because what are they making their neurotransmitters out of so the Brain RX program is just flooding your body with the amino acids you need to make neurotransmitters. Because if you think about it, 
it requires a lot of hydrochloric acid to break down proteins. And we're all living a modern American life. So we're all living with some stress. We're all living with some toxic exposure. Um, so I don't know anybody that wouldn't, wouldn't benefit from some amino acid supplementation just to help overcome um, all of the consequences of modern life. All right, so where can we get proteins from? Meat, fish, <coughs> eggs. Nuts and seeds have some protein in them. Um, nuts and seeds also have uh, lectins and phytates. So you can't get all of the protein out of nuts and seeds, just like you can't get all of the protein out of legumes and lentils, but you can get some, you can get some protein and some fiber dairy. and dairy. Yep, dairy would be the other source of protein. Now, something to note about protein. You remember I told you that fat doesn't require any insulin, right? Protein digestion requires some insulin. Remember, insulin is the hormone that pushes sugar into the cells, um, either as sugar or as glycogen or as fat. Amino acids also have to be pushed into cells. I don't know why these things just don't go in cells, but they don't. They have to be pushed in on purpose. And insulin is the hormone that pushes amino acids into your cells. So having zero insulin, not good, right? They get really skinny because they can't build tissue. Having too much insulin, also not good because you build a lot of fat cells. But the balance where you put sugar in your muscles and you burn it and you put amino acids and you build, that's what we're looking for is that healthy balance. And we'll talk about how to do that with food. But the reason I bring it up is because if you are or you know someone who is a brittle diabetic and you put them on a high protein diet, they can get worse before they get better. Because someone who has serious insulin resistance, taking them from a low protein diet to a high protein diet, it's going to overwhelm their already insulin resistant system. So what would you do instead? The fats. Fats don't require any insulin, keeps them full for a long time. So you would do high fat, medium protein, low sugar, low starch and sugar. Um, not that you need to go prescribing diets, but I find that People who are diabetic hear all kinds of conflicting information about what you should do and how you can regulate your blood sugar. And so it's, a, it's an important point that protein digestion requires some insulin. So you need to be judicious. Does protein push the amino acids also into the cells? Insulin pushes the amino acids into the cells. Oh, okay. Insulin does. Yep. All right. Which is why bodybuilders, right before they compete, will gorge on carbohydrates because it will spike their insulin and push the protein, the amino acids into their muscle cells. And they can hit the gym really hard and heavy right before they go to their competition. And then right before the competition, they'll stop eating for a whole day, lose all the water weight, and they'll be nice and defined. When they stop working out, they also gain about 100 pounds. <laughs> so I don't recommend doing that. But that is why they do that, because insulin pushes the amino acids into the cells. All right, so that leaves us with carbohydrates. Are carbohydrates bad? No. no. Yes, you have to have them. Carbohydrates are necessary for life. So um, back in the day, at, Dr. Adkins came along and 
uh, designed the Atkins diet and people saw results on that diet that they had never seen with any other kind of diet before because he was the first one in a long line to say fat is not bad. And so when we decided, okay, fat's not bad and we started eating fat and protein and getting rid of carbohydrates, people lost weight, but then he dropped dead of a heart attack. Oops. Um, carbohydrates are necessary. So the Atkins diet was meat, cheese, and green beans. That was literally all you could have. Well, the carbohydrates is where um, all your fiber and a lot of your nutrients come from, right? That's your vegetables. That's the whole vegetable family. So there's carbohydrates are not bad, but there are some carbohydrates that will not help you. And there are carbohydrates that will help you. So that's what we want to learn is what your body needs. So carbohydrate digestion starts in the mouth, remember with amylase, and that's why things with carbohydrates can taste sweet, um, and then goes to the stomach under the influence of hydrochloric acid, drops into the small intestine, and if it's sugar containing, the sugar goes straight to your bloodstream. So sugar doesn't have to go to the liver and be processed. It hits the bloodstream almost as quickly as it dumps out of your stomach, which is about 15 to about 45 minutes. Um, so within 45 minutes, you get a sugar dump on top of what you got from your mouth because you had the amylase in your mouth, right? So you were getting sugar from the very beginning. Um, and amylase was telling your pancreas, we have a lot of sugar coming because it recognizes the sugar in your mouth. Um, so you get two insulin spikes with the mouth and when it dumps into the um, intestine and um, the glucose is it's taken up almost immediately so that's why a piece of white bread has a very different impact on your blood sugar than let's say a bowl of black beans so black beans has have all these all this fiber on the outside and the fiber slows down the digestion white bread has no fiber it's just sugar and it hits your bloodstream almost immediately as soon as it drops out of the stomach. So there are definitely differences in the carbohydrates. They're not all good. They're not all bad. And remember, you have to have insulin to regulate blood sugar. So the more sugar there is, the higher your insulin level goes. And the higher your insulin level goes, um, the harder it is on your body. So let's develop sort of a spectrum of carbohydrates. What do you think would go in the good column for carbohydrates? So like broccoli, cauliflower, green beans, um, berries. So veggies kind of summed it all up, I guess. Um, any veggies you would not put over here? Carrots actually go over here. Yep. You'd have to eat a wheelbarrow full of carrots to get any, get enough sugar out of there. <laughs> um, let's see, we can put wheat and oats and white rice this is rolled oats pasta you knew it before you said it don't act surprised <laughs> um i would put steel cut oats over here so let me show you what i'm doing here this chart is basically the less insulin it requires, the better, and the more insulin it requires, the worse, because it's insulin that drives fat storage. It's not fat that drives fat storage. 
It's not the sugar itself that drives fat storage. It's the insulin response to the sugar that you've consumed. So the faster the sugar hits the bloodstream, the higher the insulin spike is going to go. And the higher the insulin spike goes, the harder you're going to have to work to, to deal with the consequences. So that's why the scale. The second part of the scale is we're not all on the same journey, right? So some people have lost all the weight that they want to lose. They're in maintenance phase. They're healthy. They're not stressed. Everything's going well. They can partake over here a little more often than someone who has all of their weight left to lose, who is super stressed out or who is sick or who has a lot of work left to do on their journey. So it's not just the insulin. It's also who you are and where you are in your journey because we're all in a different place, right? So um, the chart just gives you a decision tree, right? On deciding what you're, gonna, what you're going to consume. And not only on what you're going to consume, but what you connect it with. So if I ate steel cut oats, but I ate it with, um, I don't know, coconut oil in it and a side of nitrate-free bacon and two eggs, is the, is the blood sugar impact going to be the same as if I had just had rolled oats and nothing else? No. Not going to be the same. So if you're picking from the okay or the bad section, that means you need protein and fat to balance it out at the same meal um, to keep your insulin spike down. Now, you can't completely reverse the insulin spike of something like white rice or pasta or white bread, uh, no matter how much fat and protein you add to it. So you did not hear me say, as long as you eat fat and protein, you can have whatever carb you want. That's not what I said. Um, but this just helps you decide how hard you need to work to deal with the insulin spike. And if you are going to consume sugar, you must also burn sugar. So it's not calories in, calories out. It's how much sugar do I need to put away? How much sugar do I need to store if you don't have any storage room in your muscle cells, it will go to fat every time. So contract your muscles. And the more you exercise, the more of this category you can have without detrimental effects. Does that make sense? All right. So what else goes over here? I would put wild rice here or black rice. I love black rice. I don't know if you've had black rice, but I love it. Is it brown rice? Yep. You can put brown rice here. Um... Quinoa, we'll go over here. What about sweet potato? I put the white potatoes over here. Not to say you don't ever eat white potatoes, just to say it is a pretty big insulin spike, so you have to do that judiciously. Where lentils go? Lentils go here. lentils and legumes because lentils and legumes are 50% starch and 50% fiber. So the fiber slows down the digestion um, pretty well. And um, the insulin spike is not nearly as high. What else? I'm going to put banana like right here in the middle of the okay and the bad. Here's why. Um, real bananas are crunchy and full of dark seeds. You ever had a banana that was crunchy and full of dark black seeds? That's a real banana. We hybridized bananas until they became fluffy and delicious because we like fluffy and delicious. We don't like crunchy and full of big black seeds. So the bananas as they exist in the market today, those did not exist naturally. We did that because we wanted something that was fluffy and delicious. It has a really high insulin spike um, with banana. So we put plantain. A plantain is a lot more like what a banana used to be. 
Um, so real bananas are that tough, like that crunchy. You have to slice them. The plantains have small seeds and the bananas had big black seeds. But yeah, they're in the same family. So I would put banana somewhere over here. What about juice? You took, all, took out all the good stuff, took out all the fiber and just left the sugar. What else? We got pasta. I, I would just put any processed grain. So grains are the seeds of grasses, right? So wheat is the seed from the top of a wheat grass. Oats are the seed from the top of the oat plant. Seeds have um, that, that lectin on the outside, that um, anti-digestion ingredient because the seed wants to be eaten by an animal and then defecated out virtually unchanged. And that's how, that's their life cycle. That's how they develop more plants all across the globe. So eating, um, eating grains makes it really difficult for you to get nutrients out of what you're eating. As a matter of fact, it's so difficult to get nutrients out of processed grain products that the FDA requires us to add nutrients in. So bread is enriched with nutrients. Yet we had to add nutrients because people were becoming nutritionally depleted. Cereals, we had to add nutrients because people were becoming nutritionally depleted. So too much processed grain consumption can really derail your body in a lot of ways. And we'll talk about that another day. But the other thing is um, a seed has all the sugar in it that it needs to survive until it has a root, right? So it's got the fiber on the outside, that's the protect protective hull. And on the inside, it has all the sugar it will need to grow until it has a root to get nutrients from the ground. So when you take the fiber off, all you have left is sugar. That's all there is. That's why it's fluffy and delicious. That's why you can make bread and pasta and cakes and cookies because there's not any fiber left. So processed grains um, generate an incredibly high insulin spike and really don't offer any benefit for you. The only benefit came from the stuff we added back to it, like the B12 and the iron and the folate, that kind of stuff. Um, so I would say processed grains would be on the very, very rare list for a lot of reasons. Um, let's see. Over here. Yep. So all the fruits over here, except for um, banana. And um, I would say pineapple is kind of, depend, depends on how ripe the pineapple is and it depends on where you are on the journey. So I would put pineapple probably here in the, in the okay section. So just glancing at it, you can see that the difference is how much indigestible fiber is in the product, right? So broccoli, for example, has a whole lot of tough fibers that we won't digest. Our microbiome will digest them, but we won't digest them compared to a piece of white bread, right? So the more fiber and the less starch, the easier it is on the body. So that's what this chart is really telling you. But it also kind of gives you a decision tree to know what to eat and how to eat it. So if you're actively trying to lose weight, you would not want to consume from the bad list. If you're in a good place and you're just maintaining, then you might start to um, add a few things from the okay list and maybe occasionally something from the bad list. Just depends on where you are in the journey. Does that make sense? All right, so let's talk another minute about why too much insulin is bad for you. You definitely need insulin. You wanna have it, but you want it to work normally and you don't want it to be high. 
You can measure it too if you'd like to know what your insulin looks like. Um, a normal fasting insulin is less than six. So you can you can get that test online from my direct labs for um, like 850 or something. It's really super cheap. Fasting means you don't eat before you go in and get the test done. Um, in a fasting state, you really shouldn't have a whole lot of insulin floating around because you don't have any sugar to put away. If your fasting insulin is high, that means your body is struggling to regulate your sugar. And fasting insulin is usually high 10 to 15 years before prediabetes. So it's the earliest stage of prediabetes and diabetes. Yes, it is different. Your A1C is 15 years later. So insulin will be abnormal for 15 years before your hemoglobin A1C will start to become abnormal. So this is a much quicker, uh, much earlier detection system than waiting on your HbA1c. All right, so insulin resistance, the quick and easy way to understand it is when insulin went up to the muscle cell and said, I got some sugar, do you need it? The muscle cell said, no, that's insulin resistance at its basic form. If you're not burning sugar, if you're not burning glycogen and you're consuming more sugar than you're burning, then your cells are going to stop, start refusing to listen to insulin. That's insulin resistance. That's the first stage towards um, diabetes. So if you have insulin resistance, your risk for metabolic syndrome is high. So metabolic syndrome is obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes or prediabetes. So typically with insulin resistance, your fasting insulin will be high for a few years, and then your blood pressure will start to go up, and then your cholesterol will start to go up. You'll be gaining weight the whole time, and then 15 years in, the diabetes will happen. So this is predictable. We can see this coming. We don't have to be surprised by a diabetes diagnosis um, unless you're, not just, you're just not being checked. The other problem with um, insulin resistance is cardiovascular disease. So if you get a report for fasting insulin from Quest or LabCorp, I don't know about MyDirect Labs. I think MyDirect Labs uses LabCorp. But when you get the report from LabCorp, it gives you a tree to interpret. And it tells you that if your insulin, if your fasting insulin is X, Y, or Z, your risk for cardiovascular disease is high. So cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and stroke, heart attack strokes and blood clots. Insulin resistance raises the risk for all of those things. It also causes cancer. So you remember I told you that insulin's job is to push things into the cells. Insulin is an anabolic hormone. Anabolic just means it builds up tissue. It builds cells. Well, if you have cancer cells, and we all do, we all have cancer cells all the time, our immune system take, takes care of them. If you have cancer cells and really high levels of insulin, you're going to feed and fuel that cancer cell so much faster, faster than your immune system can take care of it. And so that's why we're seeing, that's one reason we're seeing really um, rising rates of cancer in the United States, because we have such ridiculous amounts of insulin resistance. Other reasons too, because we have a lot of toxin exposure. Um, but insulin resistance directly tied to cancer. It's also tied to Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's in a lot of studies is called type 3 diabetes because it's simply insulin resistance in the brain. 
So if you want your brain to um, keep up with you for the rest of your life, you definitely do not want insulin resistance. When you say Alzheimer's, do you mean, does that include dementia in general? Um, Alzheimer, it's specific to Alzheimer's dementia. Yeah, that's a good question. There are other kinds of dementia, um, vascular dementia, which comes after you've had a stroke or you've had a blood clot or something to the brain, frontal lobe dementia, which is a genetic thing. So it's specifically Alzheimer's dementia. All right. And then, of course, for the conversation that we're having tonight, and in this, um, in this seminar is that the higher your insulin levels, the higher your fat storage will be because insulin is going to put sugar, um, into fat cells over and over and over until the insulin resistance has corrected till you have corrected it. All right. So let's talk about sweeteners. Everybody wants to know if I got to give up my sugar, what am I going to do? All right. So um, honey is a beneficial sweetener in that it has health benefits outside of just um, it tastes good and it makes other things taste good. So honey has a pretty low glycemic um, impact, meaning how high your sugar goes when you consume it. It's a lot lower than table sugar. And the reason that it's lower than table sugar is because honey has some fibers in it. It has some antioxidants in it. Um, it has nutrients in it that sugar does not have. Um, and it's not pure sucrose. So table sugar is pure sucrose. And um, honey is glucose, fructose, and sucrose. So that's just a different digestive process. So as far as glycemic impact, honey is um, pretty decent. The problem would be amount. So you can make anything spike your blood sugar if you eat enough of it. Um, so honey is like a drizzle here or there, right? Or add a little bit to a batch of cookies that you're making using nothing but a banana as the sweetener, right? One banana can go a whole batch of 48 cookies plus a little honey. So there are ways that you can still have your treats or have treats for your grandkids without um, using wheat and sugar. Um, and we'll talk about those more as we go along, but honey is a fairly decent one. Also, if you have um, allergies, if you, if you use local honey, it will improve your allergies because the local honey has all the pollens that you're being exposed to and microdosing those pollens lowers your immune reactivity. So it can improve your allergies over time. If you use raw honey, you're also getting um, antimicrobial activity. And I use a lot of raw honey topically for wound repair. Um, because it works as an antimicrobial. It's also just full of nutrients. I mean, honey has zinc, iron, potassium, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, selenium, B vitamins, tons of stuff. None of that's in sugar. There's no added benefits to sugar, right? Just insulin spiking. Um, so honey would be kind of in my okay list, right? Sometimes not always, not tons, um, just a little bit. Moderate it. There is a um, diet, I'm, I'm sorry, there is a book that if you're interested in what the foods do to my blood sugar, it's called the Low Glycemic Load Diet by Rob Thomas, not, not from Matchbox 20, but the other Rob Thomas. Um, and he, he walks you through 
foods and how they impact your glycemic, um, how they impact your blood sugar and thus how they impact your um, insulin. There are some things he says that I don't agree with. Like if you eat peanut M&Ms, it's good for you. He doesn't really say it's good for you. He just says peanut M&Ms have a lower glycemic impact than regular M&Ms, which is true because they have peanuts. So they have protein and fat, but I would never tell you to go eat peanut M&Ms. So don't listen when Rob Thomas tells you to. All right. And then stevia. Stevia is a green um, leaf. As I mentioned, you can grow your own stevia. You can dry the leaves in a dehydrator and just sprinkle the dehydrated leaf on things. Or you can get the stevia drops. Stevia drops are um, an extract, like vanilla extract, right? They use alcohol and other um, other things to extract the stevia. So um, the stevia drops much better for you than the white powder because we don't exactly know how the white powder comes to exist. Um, Sweet Leaf is a good brand of stevia drops. And I've used a lot of sweet leaf for my children because it comes in different flavors. So for making smoothies, for making, um, you know, for making healthy candies, like ke we make a lot of keto candy at my house for the kids. Um, sweet leaf stevia drops is a good, all kinds of flavors, all kinds of flavors. Xylitol and erythritol are sugar alcohols. So a sugar alcohol is um, a product that d can't raise your blood sugar but it tastes like sugar and it works like sugar in foods. So xylitol and erythritol um, would also be in the okay category, meaning you don't want to do this all the time. Mostly I use xylitol and erythritol to get people off the standard American diet because to get them off the standard American diet, they got to have some sort of substitutes for all the crap that they love. And xylitol and erythritol helps make that transition and then as we make that transition, their sugar cravings get better and we can wean off using xylitol and erythritol. But when we first, um, when we first started eating the way that we do in my house, um, my oldest child was eight. He's 22 now. Um, we use xylitol and erythritol for that conversion because they had been on a fairly standard American diet up until that point. Um, so it's an option. Xylitol can cause GI distress especially if you have underlying gut infection. So if you have fungal infection, small intestine, bacterial overgrowth, that kind of stuff, then you can get some bloating and diarrhea. One time I made some xylitol cookies and took them to a diabetes support group where I was giving a presentation and they ate the cookies before I got to talk. So I couldn't tell people it had xylitol in it and they needed to moderate their cookie consumption. It wasn't good. Oh, okay. it, I, as a matter of fact, I was not invited back <laughs> to speak to that particular diabetes group. <laughs> it tasted really good and everybody was so complimentary, but it can definitely have negative effects on the body. So neither one of them have any impact on your blood sugar and thus they have no impact on your insulin levels. They taste like sugar. They work like sugar in um, recipes. So it is an option. I have made ice cream successfully with erythritol and it tasted just like the real thing. All right, so what do we not want to use? We definitely do not want to use aspartame, which is also known as sweet and low, the pink stuff. We do not want to use saccharin, which is also known as equal. And we do not want to use sucralose, which is also known as Splenda. 
So um, we're, in, I can't remember which class it is, but in one class, we're going to talk about all the research studies on the artificial sweeteners, but I'll give you a little preview. Aspartame is the um, food additive that has the most complaints to the Food and Drug Administration um, by quite a wide margin, by like 40% compared to everything else. Every other food additive on the planet, aspartame has a lot more um, complaints. Aspartame, um, saccharin, and sucralose all cause insulin resistance. That's not helpful, is it? So it causes insulin resistance, not because it spikes your blood sugar, but because it alters your microbiome. So we can make rats diabetic in a study by giving them um, aspartame. And then we can make other rats diabetic by taking the stool out of the initial rats and just doing a transplant into some other rats without feeding them aspartame and they can become diabetic which means that the changes that happen in your gut contribute to insulin resistance and diabetes. We've known that for a long time. Um, and these are the top three offenders. So you think that you've done a good job <laughs> by getting rid of sugar and replacing it with something else, but these actually cause more weight gain and insulin resistance than their counterpart sugar by weight. So replace, and they're also highly addictive. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody try to come off Diet Coke. Um, I lived with a mother who had to come off Tab one time and I wanted to kill her and she wanted to kill her. Um, they're very addictive. So just say no. Um, and Because they thought since it didn't have any impact, any impact on your blood sugar, it would be healthier for you until we started doing the studies. not healthier for you. And sucralose is the one that's um, made from sugar. So it tastes like sugar and you can cook with it. That was their original tagline. I don't know if you remember from back in the day, when you cook with it, um, it becomes dioxin. Dioxin is a potent carcinogen, meaning it causes cancer. One of the most common carcinogens associated with breast cancer. So you don't want to cook with it. Um, you don't want it to get hot at all. And it is made from sugar. The way that they make it is they add chlorine to sucrose and it becomes sucralose. Chlorine, chlorine good for your microbiome. Chlorine is an antibiotic. We put chlorine in things to kill bacteria. You got four pounds of bacteria in your gut that are working hard for you. You do not want to feed them chlorine. So it is made from sugar, but it is not sugar. Um, and it is definitely not good for the body. All right. Questions, comments? Um, if you were gonna do those, I would only do them cold pressed and I would not cook with them. So you could make dressings, um, you could drizzle them over things, but they oxidize really easily. So if you cook with them or if they were processed with heat, they're oxidized before you get them. So cold pressed only. She asked about safflower and sunflower oil. You want cold ex expressed um, only and then don't cook, don't cook with them. Good question. Okay, well, I appreciate you guys coming. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.